Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. A very warm welcome to everyone for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great conversation ahead. Joining me, Elliot Turner, RGA Investment Advisors, and Phil Ordway, Anabatic Fund. Elliot, why don't we get started with you this week? Please go ahead. Sure, great. Thank you, John. Uh, how's it going, guys? I this week wanted to pick up and kind of continue the conversation that Phil started on subscription services and take it, you know, one step further and talk about wholesale transfer pricing. Um, Trend Griffin on Twitter talks about this phrase a lot. Um, I guess it goes back to his history in um, telecommunications and uh, cable, et cetera, um, where, you know, this concept was really important when you were selling cable services. Um, And I want to relate it to a couple of the companies. You know, it it really is born out of this conversation we had about Peloton. Uh, But I wanted to focus on, like, one of the stocks that's absolutely caught my eye as something insane in the market today is Fubo. Uh, Fubo TV, um, and then I want to relate this to Netflix and Spotify, um, and think about how they're different and what the consequences are. So Fubo today has gross margins. You know, I, I, I asked someone, I was like, "Where would you set the over under on how bad a bad gross margin would be for something like Fubo?" And they're like, ten percent." I was like, "Lower." They're like, five percent lower." Zero lower. Um, their gross margins in their uh, last reported quarter. Um, were something uh, to the order of my, near minus 50%. And so, you know, why would this subscription service end up being worth over $8 billion as we speak in the market today? Uh, and by worth, I, you know, I obviously don't mean it's worth that much, but you could buy or sell shares at that price right now. Um, Fubo TV has been growing really fast. They've been getting subscribers. They came at OTT with a unique value prop. They told people that, we are the cord cutter sports fans' choice to get their sports. And incidentally, I had known Fubo quite well. I obviously have mentioned Roku here quite a bit because I've spent a lot of time on the OTT space when I was uh, in the process of cord cutting, which I've never done. It, it, kind of different story why I haven't. Cablevision dropped my price so much I didn't. But Fubo was like the only one of the RSN, uh, was the only one of the carriers between uh, Hulu TV, YouTube TV, um, and uh, sling that had access to MSG, the MSG RSNs. And I, as a loyal, long-suffering Islanders fan, uh, really wanted MSG. And so Fubo was basically the only option that I was able to consider. And so they used that wedge to position themselves, and they did this in other markets around the country. They used that wedge to position themselves as the choice for um, sports fans who wanted to cut the cord. Now the question is like, can they scale into those unit? Can they can they use scale to improve their unit economics? And that presumes that they're able to get some degree of leverage over their customers and raise prices, and some degree of leverage over their suppliers and force down their unit costs. There, the problem is they are engaged in what's called wholesale transfer pricing. They are effectively a middleman. They are buying this content 
from the content creators and they are selling it to you, the customer, at a subscription price. And in theory, what they do is they mark up that price at a fixed margin and so that they're able to make money. Uh, but in this land grab phase where they're trying to acquire customers, they're not able to do either. They have neither the scale nor the leverage to kind of push around their customers or suppliers. It's a hyper-competitive market. So YouTube and uh, Hulu and, and Sling are offering competitive prices. Uh, their differentiation has been whittled away because effectively the world realized everyone needed to have an, uh, their, their services available um, so what, what's the wedge for FUBA? Well, they claim they eventually will build, uh, will, will, will bid on sports rights. But I mean, God, give me a break. Do you think they're going to be able to bid against ESPN and Disney um, and some of these other services? Not really. But so, okay. So let's talk about Netflix and Spotify and some of the different approaches, right? Um, I've, to my detriment, refrained from investing in Spotify, even though I really appreciate it and like the business. Because, you know, what's different about uh, Spotify is they for every song that's streamed, have a preset amount that they have to pay out to call it the, the artist. Um, it's a little more complex than that and who takes the piece of the pie, but let's call it the artist for the sake of simplicity. And so Spotify, even as they grow, even as they get customers to pay them more money, they're not exactly able to um, realize a greater gross margin. So their gross margin stays pretty stagnant. Um, Netflix was once in the same position. They effectively had to pay content companies for content and then sell you a subscription to access it online. Let's skip the step where Netflix was, you know, a DVD by mail. Um, and so they saw a different solution. They became a content creator. They vertically integrated, they owned the content they then sold to you as a subscriber, and they created a degree of scalability within their margin structure where, you know, their, their cogs were predominantly fixed as opposed to variable, and they could choose at their own choice, whether to keep investing in content to try to acquire more subscribers, or eventually one day what they'll do is they'll stop incremental investment in content spend above what they do in any given year and start harvesting, you know, growing and growing uh, uh, gross margins. Um, Spotify, one of the interesting things, one of the ideas that was introduced to me as a way that they perhaps could get out of this problem is that in radio, um, typically, the uh, artists through the labels would actually pay radio stations to play their content in contrast to being paid for it. And it was a way to get exposure so that people would actually want to buy albums and engage with the content directly. And perhaps one of the interesting things you're seeing Spotify experiment with most recently is that customers uh, who access a song, oh, sorry, artists could effectively take a lower take rate and Spotify would increase the prominence of that song in their playlists and their algorithms, giving more exposure. And so I think that's a lever that they potentially could pull to try to you know, get out of this wholesale transfer pricing problem, give themselves a little gross margin leverage, and improve the economics of the entire business. But for something like Fubo, I don't really see a path to getting there. I don't really see a way to getting there. Um, and it's very different. And you know, to bring it back where we began, this is one of the things where I think down the line, Peloton, while they have not realized increasing gross margins on the content side because they keep investing in new content, new kinds of exercises, like just last week they launched Pilates, um, you know, they, they are broadening the scope of what they have to try to increase the, the appeal and kind of, I think, increase the attach rate of their customers, where if you get someone to do biking in addition to Pilates, in addition to yoga through Peloton, they're more likely to stick with it than just biking because that might be something something someone wants to get away from eventually. Perhaps they're able to realize that leverage eventually. 
But I find wholesale transfer pricing to be a really interesting uh, force in these kinds of businesses. I think it's something that we have to think about. And I think it's the next logical step in kind of expanding our conversation around subscriptions. So with that, I you know, kind of want to open it up to you guys, see what you think about these different services. Maybe you have some other examples that you've considered where it's really relevant. Um, and we could take it from there. Yeah, I, I'm out of my depth compared to you and, and a lot of people on this topic, uh, certainly as it pertains to media properties, I would say, in most regards. Um, I will say, I mean, having only briefly looked at Fubo, I, I, <laughs> I hate to sound like the perma bear or anything because I'm certainly not, but I think there are a lot of companies out there right now that are kind of under this cloak of success from other companies that are sort of around them on the periphery where there's just no real hope of this ever working, at least in the way that I think the equity market is discounting the valuation. So um, I agree. I think this is a very powerful concept. I would highly recommend uh, Trent Griffin's writing and work on the topic. I mean, his blog is unbelievable. Uh, His Twitter feed is hard to keep up with because it's so prolific, but uh, he's a top-notch person and really thinks deeply about a lot of this kind of stuff in a very humble, uh, you know, interesting guy. So he, he's, I, I would defer to him. And as you said, his his experience both with, with Goss Cellular and, uh, and Microsoft is, uh, you know, he's probably as well-positioned as anyone in the world to opine on this sort of stuff. So um, I don't have any strong opinions or takes on it other than the fact that I think there are a lot of, we could probably apply this to a lot of things. Like you said, subscription models that, yes, there's a subscription element, but the economics are not what we're talking about with Amazon Prime or Costco or Netflix or something, right? It's just a crappy business that threw a subscription in there to kind of ride that wave. And I think the same applies to all sorts of different things in in this crazy market. Elliot, I'm just curious whether you think Anytime there is um, wholesale transfer pricing in play, that it's likely you're looking at not a great business. In other words, companies that have that kind of uh, pricing, they they all seem to be trying to get away from it and get more to exclusivity, exclusive content, original content, and things like that. Yeah, you know, I think there's something to be said about that, but there are some distinctions. Like to me, one of the key distinctions is whether the service is built in a way where they own the customer and they own the customer experience and they're doing something different than has been done before in a different way, in a better way. And I think that's one of the to the power of Spotify, even though they're victims of wholesale transfer pricing, they've built a true platform that gives them a license to experiment in different directions, whether it be podcasting or new. Uh, comp models for artists. And, you know, that's very different than something like, uh, and Phil, I know you maybe were dancing around this. I'll be blunt on Fubo. I think it's one of the dumbest stocks I've seen (laughs) in the market today. It is absolutely insane. The faster they grow, the more money they'll lose. And they have absolutely no way out of this predicament. And you could easily switch to any other service and get exactly what they are offering you. Um, And so they don't truly own the customer. They have perhaps ported some degree of experience in a unique way for a very short period of time, but it's not very easy for people to catch up. On Spotify, I think their relationship with customers is extremely different. And they built a layer where, you know, they really changed the way people do engage with music. They kind of uh, were the pioneers 
of turning music from a purchase to consume into a subscription product. And people have built playlists and all kinds of uh, social connections within Spotify that are unique and that are kind of irreplaceable to some people, uh, not all people, but to some people in, in an incredibly differentiated kind of way. So I think it gets to uh, you know whether you truly own the customer, whether you're the one who the customer has an affinity for and feels that their experience is built through. Um, but that's a really good question. It's like, you know, I, I don't necessarily think they're all inherently bad uh, as victims of wholesale transfer pricing. It depends on whether you're truly un- creating unique value for your customers or whether you are merely a pass-through. And like, yeah, so I, cable, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I actually wasn't trying to dance around it. I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. I was definitely not referring to Spotify because there I think it's a good example of, sure, the equity market the valuation on the company may be right. It may be wrong. I'm truly open-minded there. I mean, yeah, it doesn't necessarily make sense to me, but that has no real bearing on reality. Spotify is an innovative company. It's a powerful company. It's a great company. Sure, it has some flaws in the economic model that, that we're talking about here, no doubt. But I think there is an example of a platform and a customer base that they've engaged with and built up from scratch that does have some real value. How that value, you know, gets ascribed to the various parties over the years will be really interesting to play out. But I'm not really, you know, that that's fine. That's in a separate category. This does seem questionable <laughs> at best. The only reason I'm not quite as strident in pointing it out is just one. I think it um, <clears throat> it sort of defeats the purpose to have negative thoughts that I'm constantly ascribing to one company as a bad actor or a bad example or something. Right. I, mean, I think as soon as you start using specifics to call things out on the negative side, you have all sorts of problems, right? People take it personally. If if someone's had a good experience with that particular company or product, they admit, admittedly, you know, that's their experience and that's fine, but they, they jump right to thinking that you're an idiot and that nothing applies. It, it just seems to me to be always more helpful to think in terms of concepts and ideas rather than calling out the specifics. And and with that in mind, I mean, one great example of this concept that you're talking about, Elliot, and again, I'll, I'll refrain from naming the specific company, although I'm sure some of you can probably figure it out. There's a company that's very popular right now, all the rage in a lot of ways, where um, they buy, their, their input is buying product uh, in the market, basically, and then they kind of package it up and resell it and there's massive wholesale transfer pricing issues there. And the gross margin, I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's certainly negative. And it's been getting more negative. And I just don't see how there's anything truly lasting or meaningful or real there. But if you want to get really... And I will say, by the way, it's also been a very popular investment. Some of the best investors of, of recent vintage have piled into this thing. It kind of reminds me of Valiant in that regard, right? Where Valiant for whatever reason, we can talk about that as a whole separate topic, attracted some truly brilliant, unbelievable investors. I mean, the kind we should all aspire to be. And they were all big on the shareholder roster of Valiant, despite some, you know, both in hindsight and at least for me in real time, some glaring flaws there. So anyway, this particular company, though, I mean, if you want to get really cynical, I think there's a lot of companies out there that have figured out 
and it's not the fake it till you make it phenomenon of, of Theranos or something like that, but it is truly this concept of I'm going to build an audience in a platform. I'm going to completely ignore microeconomics and any sort of returns on capital for as long as it takes to get to some sort of attention garnering scale. And when I do, I, I'll figure out some way to sell it or monetize it or whatever. And maybe that's a an IPO, maybe that's a sale to another company who's just looking for eyeballs or engagement. I mean, in this case, the company I was referring to, it's been public for quite a while, but the, the chairman and the controlling family have cashed out, cashed out well over a billion dollars of stock. And so at some point, you know, the joke's on everybody else because they built something that the market found valuable and they monetized it. And so I, I just see a lot of that going on right now. And I, I don't know how it all ends, but it's certainly certainly interesting. Uh, I think I finally, at the very end, figured out which company you were talking about, but I was <laughs> getting frustrated with myself for not knowing along the way. But I see yeah. exactly what you mean. I think that's definitely one of the strategies that like, you know, venture capitalists kind of uh, was the Uber of this or the Uber yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. And the wedge that everyone's looking for these days is someone who could kind of aggregate attention, as you said, and then build a platform and move into different directions off that. And, you know, I think the the truth of the matter is there are some that are going to do this and be wildly successful. And there are some that are going to fail miserably. And, you know, it, it's going to be hard to know uh, ex ante which ones are, are going to be successful and which ones won't. So we could obviously try and, you know, think about the differences. Um, I brought up Spotify partly because, you know, it's one that I've been approached by several people being like, this is the kind of company that you should have nailed. Why'd you miss it? Like, what were you thinking? And, you know, to me, I got stuck on this. And to an extent, I'm still stuck on it. And I'm starting to see a path to something better, though I think the market has kind of like priced in that there's that path already. And I prefer situations where it's not exactly where, where like, you know, you're buying the existing economics and that future path is optionality as opposed to, you know, required to, to harvest along the way. Um, that's a big part of like my process. And so, you know, it's interesting and different. And, you know, I, I think in subscriptions, as far as subscriptions are concerned, um, there are companies who could take, like, like it's interesting to think about Vail in this vein, where they have, you know, effectively like fixed assets with fixed costs. And in turning it into a subscription, they change the entire nature of their business. And they're not merely transferring value, whereas their one competitor uh, in past terms is kind of because they're not owned by the same parent and they can't share some of the benefits of the scale truly a pass-through. So it creates like interesting competitive dynamics there. Um, and so, yeah, you, you see these kinds of setups in all kinds of industries now, especially as people are more willing to purchase subscriptions. And so, yeah, you do have to ask like more and different questions about who is and who is not creating value and what it means to create value in the first place, uh, thinking about the company that you're, you were alluding to there. Yeah, and so that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Is I, I again, it's not to sound too pessimistic on any individual company or person or whatever over the short run. I mean, there are all sorts of things that end up having lots of real value that I don't see. I would not be a great venture capitalist, and so uh, that's not the point. The point is that sooner or later, and we're talking about a scale of maybe a decade, there has to be something real there rather than just the aggregation of attention or eyeballs or customers <laughs> that you acquire at a loss. And so one observation, the last one I'll make is, is just that, you know, I think 
I'll try to find it, but I'm pretty sure in that um, Twitter thread you were referring to, or maybe it was on Trent Griffin's blog, I can't remember, but you know, he sort of pointed out that he originally, I think one of the places he got this idea or, or started focusing on the idea was, I think you brought up too, John Malone and, and the cable industry back in the day. You know, there was kind of this push and pull between content owners and content creators and then the ultimate audience. And so there was obviously a big opportunity there for wholesale transfer pricing to play a prominent role. And as we've rolled forward, you know, that that industry's changed. It'll continue to change. But I think the one of the driving forces of the world in the last 10 or 20 years, and it's almost certain to be a driving force in the world in the next 10 and 20 years, is the rise of the digitization of everything and ubiquitous information. And if anything, it seems like it should destroy wholesale transfer pricing for true middlemen that don't serve a purpose because there just should be less need for them, right? I mean, when you can access instant information from anywhere and you know there's, there's immediate price transparency on almost everything, that to me would seem to lessen the ability of a whole lot of companies that are relying on this old model of wholesale transfer pricing. But instead, a lot of them seem to be hanging on under the guise of you know something new or different when there's really absolutely nothing new or different about anything they're doing. That's such a great, interesting point and immediately gets me thinking about Disney and what they're doing with Disney Plus, where like formerly and maybe still to an extent, they play this key part in the bundle. <clears throat> and then now, you know, with Disney Plus, they're going direct to consumer. However, they are still selling through uh, some of the cable companies like Comcast could, through wholesale transfer pricing, be the, the one to sell Disney Plus to their customers or Verizon uh, or whoever else, except by virtue of them being able to go directly to customer and and forge this direct relationship, it changes the entire terms through which uh, the bundler can then uh, demand from, you, you know, it really just tilted the leverage entirely in Disney's favor, the content companies empowering those that can do, go direct versus those that can't. So that's really interesting. Hey, Elliot, uh, you piqued my curiosity. Did you say Vail as in Vail Resorts? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Can you just elaborate a little bit? Because I missed that one. Yeah. So, you know, the one uh, market they really haven't been able to pull this off in is Europe. Um, but they've been quite successful in the US, Canada, Australia, even. I didn't really appreciate how there were ski areas there until uh, studying Vail. Um, and uh, Japan. To a lesser extent, though, it's a market they're trying to get into for strategic reasons. But effectively, they've turned skiing into a subscription. You buy the Epic Pass at the beginning of the year, and you know, depending on which level of pass you get, you could ski at uh, any or all of the Vail Resort mountains that are in their ownership. And a cup, I think they've had at various points a couple uh, non-owned partners, like A Basin was was with them for a while in Colorado. And so in doing that, they've done several things. One is they've changed their cash conversion cycle to getting paid upfront versus after giving services. So that's been quite nice. They've taken what's historically a seasonal business and turned it into a recurring revenue one. So they formerly had been beholden to uh, snowfall cycles. And you know, one year, one area might do well. Another year, another area might do well. 
and that had consequences for how people would think about planning their travel to kind of simplifying the process for a skier to say, I'm just going to get an epic pass and I'll see where the snow is falling in the beginning of the year and then go that way. Um, and then they've also used, you know, this pass to start acquiring more uh, resorts, different layers of resorts. So most recently they bought uh, uh, peak resorts, which gives them access to a whole bunch of kind of smaller, smaller mountains that are located in very close vicinity to major uh, metropolitan areas in the U.S., to try to kind of increase the value they're giving for the same subscription, but also find ways to kind of get newer skiers into the Vail ecosystem, right? They're truly building an ecosystem around it. And so, you know, that's changed the entire landscape of the industry. It's given them immense clout. Uh, there's some people who love them for it. And obviously, anytime there's major change in an area that people are passionate about, there's some people that hate them for it. Uh, but I think they've changed skiing. They've changed the pricing structure of it. Uh, if you want to ski and you buy a pass, it's much cheaper than were you to go to a resort and buy day passes. But one of the consequences is they've they've recognized the value they're giving up front and they're trying to steer people that way. So day pass for skiing. My God, when I went to St. Moritz, I was like, whoa, this is this is kind of wild how cheap it is for a one-day pass compared to like a rinky dink mountain over here, which charges three times the price. Um, you know, so th so th there have been some big changes that people have had to absorb. And understand, but it's it's turned the entire thing into a subscription, um, and their uh, costs, their cogs are effectively, you know, they're they're all fixed. Um, but one promise they've made is because of the consistency of the business, because of the recurring nature, they've been able to promise like a very consistent level of cap capex to kind of improve their resorts every year. Every year, they've made like meaningful improvements and made it a better experience for everyone out there. And, and where does the wholesale transfer pricing come in? Is that between the various mountains or, or such? Oh, yeah. So their competitor, um, the Icon Pass, effectively is a victim of wholesale transfer pricing where, you know, they sell this pass, but, you know, it was created by the owners of Aspen who also owned other mountain assets, except they brought in a whole bunch of other mountains that they don't own. And so depending on where someone with that pass skis on a given day, um, that resort has to get a piece of that person's subscription on the year. Um, and so it's really a pass-through. And so in contrast to Vail, where they can make this really meaningful commitment on CapEx and improving their resorts and use their leverage to purchase capital goods for my understanding is, you know, 10 to 20% less than any competitor out there. They're able to accelerate and accrete these advantages, but the, the certainty and the cost structure are, are, are not... Uh, fixed to the same extent for the resorts in the icon purview. And so it's a very different kind of uh, economics that they could pursue in, in the icon pass in contrast to Vail's epic pass. Got it. Interesting. Um, you know, one last uh, thought or little exercise before we move on, uh, since, you know, Phil, you mentioned uh, rather not... Uh, criticize companies by name, uh, which, by the way, I'm, I'm fine with it, although sometimes it's, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily, it, get, it can get misinterpreted. But I guess uh, on Fubo, um, to, to kind of switch it uh, to a positive stance, you know, can you guys think of any path uh, that they could be successful? Is there anything they could do to actually create value over time? 
I mean, there's reflexivity in the markets, right? So if you're being handed this kind of currency by Mr. Market, you could raise a lot of equity, right? And then start bidding on content and truly deliver on this promise that you're the sports bundle and make something exclusive. So if they bought some interesting sports rights, like they started, they really started with soccer uh, in the US. Um, and so, you know, there's a passionate uh, fan base, but it's not large, but it's niche. It's not the kind of fan base that, you know, YouTube TV is going to cater to. So they, they, they could do something different and interesting. And they've talked about sports betting. And, you know, I've got a history with the industry. And there are a lot of people in the industry who do think that media is going to have considerable clout in sports betting. And if they could build a better experience around that, they could have some economic vector that's completely detached to the cost of content itself. Um, if they're able to create some sort of ecosystem and experience around betting tied to your viewing experience. You know, and I know there are people out in in the sports betting industry working on such a thing. So perhaps there is a way out. Um, but yeah, that that that's where the angle I'd come from. Yeah, John, to follow up too. I mean, I think I, I've certainly called out a few companies in the negative in a negative sense, and I, I'm more than happy to do it where I think somebody's a legitimately bad actor or something. It's not about you know shrinking from that. Um, it's really just, like I said, trying to keep an open mind and and trying not to sound holier than thou, uh, because there's certainly a good chance that I'm wrong about this kind of stuff. And it's really just more that I think people start to shut down when you use examples that are too specific to illustrate a broader point. But, you know, that said, we've talked plenty about Peloton. And one thing that um, I saw recently, I think it was a couple days ago, maybe yesterday, they announced they bought Precore, kind of a long-established uh fitness company. And if you want to talk about a way to actually do something that creates value, and you know, I guess you could look at it somewhat cynically, right? If you want to say um, they had done something not nefarious, but uh, to kind of build a platform to then take advantage of an inflated currency. I don't think they did that intentionally or in a negative sense at all. But, you know, some people might take that you, that's fine. But let's just say we got to where we are and however we got here is a separate issue. But now that we're here and you've got Peloton and it's riding this huge wave of momentum, the single best thing they could do would be to use that currency to go out and buy other things that are cheap, right? And and this is, you know, the Henry Singleton playbook. I mean, lots of people have done this over the years and it definitely works. And so to your point about what could actually work at some of these media companies or all others that are kind of on the wrong end of it or or even the companies that are on the right end of it. I mean, that's that's certainly what I would do if I were in their shoes. Yeah, and my thought on, on Fubo was that maybe they really ought to go super niche in terms of the sports and kind of consolidate that long tail of sports where a sport might be niche, but it may have a super high, highly loyal audience where actually that would become a reason to subscribe, right? If I really care about water polo for whatever reason, and they have it, I'm going to sign up. And then over time, they could kind of ride that curve back up toward the the larger sports. But, you know, who knows uh, whether that would work or or whether, you know, I don't know. Elliot, do you have a, a take on that? I mean, my main take is that it's easier to deliver on that as a one billion than an eight plus billion dollar company uh, building these niches. And I think that's one of the perils of like extremely high expectations. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot with Twitter, Um, but when you have unjustifiably high market cap in the beginning, it 
lead, it could lead you astray as an organization to do things that you wouldn't otherwise have done to try to substantiate it. And if it doesn't work, it could lead to all kinds of, you know, uh, feedback loops in the opposite direction, like we talked about with reflexivity. And yep. with Airbnb, I think they were feeling the weight of those expectations when the IPO priced where it did, right? I, mean, I think maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you can almost see the fear on Brian mm-hmm. Chesney's face in that interview. And and look, I uh, th- this is going to sound preachy, but I do think it's 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 true, and I think it's 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 there in the evidence that any good CEO who cares about the business itself and the employees that work there and has a view of more than a few years, you know, really cares about where the organization is going to be five or 10 years from now, wouldn't want the stock to, to sell at too high a price. The CEO would want the stock to sell at a rational price in a rational range, not too high, not too low. And, and I don't think that is a very common sentiment today. And I'd take that one step for, for, uh, further. The CEO would actually be proactive in shaping expectations and kind sure. of, you know, not not necessarily saying, hey, my stock's overvalued, which is something Elon Musk has actually done in the past. I know. In bizarre <laughs> ways. But they'd yeah. say things to kind of walk down expectations and make sure people's uh, hopes for the company are anchored in something that they feel they could deliver on. But look, Warren, Warren Buffett, Mark Leonard, Constantly, they've all said explicitly in 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 public securities filings that they think the stock at a then current price was either not attractive or too highly valued or whatever. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And in a lot of senses, I think it's the correct way to behave because you're communicating what you actually think and 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 what you know the numbers would suggest. Mm-hmm. I totally feel like agree. It's an interesting philosophical debate because we also, I think. A lot of us worship um, Singleton, right? And he kind of there would have there would be no Henry Singleton if the stock had always been priced rationally, right? So he kind of did benefit from it being too low at times, it being too high at other times. Um, not that he necessarily caused that, right? He probably just wasn't yeah. communicating with the street and let the stock do whatever it wanted to do. I think they've even called that out. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I think the people that, you know, Munger was reasonably well-versed and knew him personally. And um, I think he's even pointed that out, that it's not how they would have chosen to behave. But there's definitely a bright line there between taking advantage of a stock that's too cheap or too expensive versus someone that's doing something to artificially depress it and then take advantage of it or artificially inflate it and then take advantage of it, right? I mean, that that mm-hmm. is, to me, where you draw a huge line in the sand. And I don't... I, look, I don't think there's a ton of evidence of people committing outright securities fraud to inflate their their the value of their currencies today. But there's certainly not a lot of people that are taking the view that, boy, you know, this is a kind of dangerous, tough game to play. If I talk things up too much, the expectations can become crushing and you get into a very negative kind of uh-huh. reflexivity. And that, that seems to be just, you know, not even on anyone's concern list right now. Yeah. And when you think about it, like, um, you know, when we're investors, we're kind of negotiating with Mr. Market every day and deciding whether we do or don't want to make a deal with Mr. Market. But when you're an operator, like when I think of Singleton, I think he's in this beautiful dance with Mr. Market and he's operating with a degree of feel for where Mr. Market is and is able to kind of like feed into what Mr. Market wants. So like when things are a little too hot, he's able to understand that like my equity's got currency and I could use this and create a future uh, destiny that 
maybe sort of justify this. And when Mr. Market goes the other way, like the dance moves, like you can't just not negotiate with Mr. Market as an operator. You have to understand where he is, what he's doing. And, you know, so Singleton's like, okay, now my stock's cheap. I'm going to turn in from using it as a source of currency to I'm going to shrink my business meaningfully. And, you know, you could go back and forth and be fluid. Like fluidity is, I think, the most important uh, way that an operator has to approach something like that. And I don't know if we've seen someone out there yet today who truly thinks or operates that way, but it would be interesting to kind of try to search for for true examples. Um, you know, they're like good outsider examples, but I don't know about someone who's like truly managed uh, Mr. Market in the way that Singleton did. Great. Well, uh, let's move on. Phil, I know you want to talk about uh, 2021 expectations. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So with, at the risk of sounding even more like an old man yelling at the wind. Um, I do want to, I've, it's kind of that silly season for forecasting and expectations, right? Where you, you can't look at anything without seeing somebody prognosticating about what's going to happen in 2021. And yeah, I think that's natural, right? We all feel uh, that sense of the, the change <clears throat> and the changing of the guard as we flip the calendar forward one year. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you start to see these, people putting out forecasts with real numbers attached to them that are just not only silly, but actually could be harmful and detrimental if anyone ever takes them seriously or anchors on them. I mean, that's where I really start to get a little bit frustrated. I mean, you know, I I looked, there was an article put out recently about um, kind of the consensus amongst Wall Street economists. And again, that's an easy group to beat up on. But the, uh, the consensus at this time last year was that in 2021, or sorry, the consensus in December of 2019 was that for 2020, the U.S. equity market would return low single digits. And all these Wall Street economists had all these sound bites about what they were looking for and why this mattered and why that was important. And therefore, we were going to get a 3.7% return or some ridiculously specific number. Um, of course, we all know what happened. As with most things in life, the thing that really mattered, the thing that was really going to turn the tide was not on anyone's radar when those forecasts were made because the things that are most important are, by definition, the things that are going to be unexpected. Um, But then by March and April, um, when things were really scary and really ugly, of course, where were the forecasts then? By that point, everybody had flipped to a, you know, strongly the other way and said they expected that for the full year 2020, the U.S. equity markets would be down double digits. And of course, we know that was, again, wrong entirely. We flipped around completely and we're up double digits and that forecast looks dumber than ever. And now as people are starting to look forward to 2021, we're getting the same repeat of this cycle of nonsense where, you know, I think the consensus, if I've I, I honestly didn't even try to figure out what exactly it was, but it seems quite optimistic and quite bullish. Um, and I don't care what the forecast really pertains to, whether it's U.S. equity uh, performance, whether it's interest rates or commodities or anything else. There's really not much evidence that any of those forecasts have any validity. There's quite a bit of evidence to the contrary that they're terrible uh, to the extent that anyone's capable of doing that sort of analysis, it tends to be, you know, investors of a very <laughs> rare breed um, that can take advantage of that sort of things. And I'm certainly not one of them. And, and chances are nothing you're reading is is written by anybody that can do anything like that. Um, another thing that, that jumped out was the, the great Michael Mobison on his Twitter feed pointed out that there's basically zero, statistically almost exactly zero correlation between um, equity market returns from one year to the next. So just because 
one trip around the sun yielded conditions that produced one result that has nothing to do with the next trip around the sun. And that makes total sense, right? I mean, what, why should one, uh, you know, solar orbit be, you know, related to the next? There's, there's really no evidence for that. But I think there tends to be this strong sense of what's just happened carrying forward. I think if you see a common thread in a lot of forecasting mistakes, it tends to be over-extrapolation. Certainly overconfidence plays a big role in that as well, and it's a related topic, but over-extrapolating what's just happened uh, tends to be kind of the cardinal sin of a lot of market participants and forecasters. Um, so I, I guess the message here really is just that um, I don't read any of these forecasts or have any expectations that, that any of these forecasts are going to be realistic for what's going to happen in 2021. If someone were to force me to give a forecast, which some people have done either formally or you know informally, friends in conversation or whatever, I always refer back to them and say, look, it's just like forecasting the specific weather on a day two months from now. It's literally impossible. The math doesn't work. The computing power literally doesn't exist. So if you were going to try to give an intelligent forecast of what the weather would look like exactly two months from now, you would go to some sort of base rate calculation. You'd literally go to the long-term average for that date and say, you know, here's what's roughly normal to be expected. And you'd put a range around it. And that would be that. And likewise for next year, I think that is the best way to approach, um, you know, financial markets and expectations in, in the investing world. Because, None of us have any ability to forecast the exact path of the virus. None of us have the ability to forecast the ex exact political response. None of us have the ability to forecast big macro factors that are really going to matter. You know, what, what the Fed does and doesn't do, what interest rates do, what certain companies do. It's going to be very difficult to ever forecast that kind of stuff, and particularly in an environment like today. So um, I don't know if you guys have strong thoughts on what's likely to come down the pike next year. Um, but I guess I'm very firmly in the agnostic camp. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, say I have strong thoughts about what's likely to happen next year, but I have been thinking a lot about, in general, as we go from pandemic to new normal. And I don't want to say normalcy, because I do think there will be like a different kind of normal that we inevitably establish um, and so there was this Yale professor who I first followed early in March, who was like insistent uh, and explained with good historical studies why schools should be closed. And he recently published a book. And I, I guess the book is not released yet, but there's uh, uh, a preview that was floating around the internet. Uh, the, the Yale professor is Dr. Nicholas Christakis. And his new book's going to be called Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And he basically said there are a couple things that you could expect, and that's happened through human history in the aftermath of a uh, pandemic. It's that there is an increase in sex, a decrease in religiosity, and an economic boom. And those are his three things that he kind of you know says that you could expect to happen. And, you know, you go back to thinking and it's like, well, the roaring 20s, holy cow, they did kind of happen immediately after a pandemic. Like there might be something to this. Um, and obviously that's one data point, but he apparently went way farther back in history. And I like kind of early on in this pandemic situation was like, I came to the belief, I came to believe that, you know, we are going to see a roaring 20s of sorts. Um, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of that in economic behavior, but in uh, people behavior that, you know, just knowing 
from how I feel being bottled up. Like I'd hardly left the end of my driveway for the last month. Um, I, I think people want to get out there. People are going to live life in, in a very full way. People are going to go, go say stuff like, what are experiences that have always been on my bucket list that I was like, I'm going to do this eventually. And I hadn't done it yet. And how could I go do that as quickly as possible? And so, you know, I, I, if I want to make any predict, I want to etch it in digital stone, so to speak, that, that I believe that we're going to have this kind of, uh, set up for the next decade. Um, so that, that's one I'll put out there and say, I'll stand behind. The social uh, rebound in terms. I, I mean it more in the yeah. social than the market sense. Although it's hard to think that we could have it in a social sense without the market playing yeah, ball too. But uh, I, I'm far more confident on the social side than the that's market. That's an interesting side. point. Yeah, I mean, look, I I would tend to agree on the social side. I mean, people are social creatures, and so being artificially confined for some period of time, you tend to think there's a snapback uh, in the other direction. I, I would also just say that I think people are unpredictable and they're they're messy and they're crazy and it's hard to uh, analyze their behaviors in advance. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I'm with you. I think it seems totally likely. I know how I'm planning things and people like to plan ahead. They like to forecast things, but particularly as you get into investor behavior in markets, it, you know, I think it's just this very important concept that if it's already so completely well known, there might not be something to do about it. There's no, there's no excess there. There's no contrarian way to play that, or at least along the same trend. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe it's it, it would seem fully discounted. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a little harder to grasp. But like I, I, one of the interesting ones was like I think it was either the second or third quarter Pinterest earnings report. I think it was the second quarter. Like while things were still pretty bad, they're like one of our actually more active verticals uh, was travel. And then it's not that people were going to travel. It's that people were like dreaming about what they're going to do when they can travel again. And right. that has interesting top of funnel advertising consequences. But I, 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 I don't know if anyone knows how to price it in or think directionally what, where, why, how people are going to do whatever they're going to do. Um, but you, there, there are other forces at work too. I mean, I, I guess when I try to translate it to the market, this year was the fastest year of growth in household income in the last... 28 years or something like that, which is just mind blowing to think about in the middle of a pandemic where unemployment soared like this. That's all and the part direct of that has to do transfers of the stimulus checks, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the savings rate is as high as, as it's been too. Um, yeah. So if you know they successfully build a bridge to get to the other side, the amount of liquidity and the amount of cash that people have like built up to go about attacking their uh, future potential is is kind of interesting to think. Uh, turn a lot of this. Um, you know, hidden potential into actual uh, it could be it could be a really potent force. Um, I, again, I'm I'm speaking more in terms of like people and their behavior. I don't necessarily think it could translate to anything in markets. I'm just thinking about how people want to act. Yeah, and and I think you're right. I mean, I think travel will see a big rebound, but I think it'll potentially one way to think about it is the way people view a vacation. Everybody takes everybody likes to take a vacation. But if you actually survey people, there have been fascinating studies about this. They're happiest right before the vacation and right as the vacation is starting. And then about halfway through the vacation, they're probably as unhappy as they were at any point <laughs> leading up to it because there's this sense of like, oh, it's over. I don't have anything to look forward to anymore. So I kind of wonder if the same thing might happen or apply 
to this post-pandemic world of people saying, you know, I just can't wait until I get that vaccine or life back to normal and I can travel and go to sporting events and do all this stuff that I've missed so much. And then once they actually get over that hump and they can actually go do that thing again, if it'll kind of wear off relatively quickly. I don't know. It's so funny you say that because like I saw this German psychologist, Psycho Weber, give a presentation where they used fMRI to map people's happiness in their brain upon opening a really fine bottle of wine. And they found that the peak moment of enjoyment was when the cork was popped and you get the first whiff and that you actually went to a lower level of happiness after you took your first sip than you were before you even opened the bottle of wine. That's a perfect um, analogy for how I think the, uh, I'd have to go find some of these studies. It's been years, but that's exactly the way people responded to vacations. I could totally see that. Well, I know you've been researching the wine industry in some <laughs> detail, Elliot. Um, so maybe we'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, I do agree uh, or think that there will be a snapback. Just, um, you know, how I personally feel is I do want to get out there and, and, catch up on all the things that I wasn't able to do uh, this year. I don't know how um, enduring that will be. I, I kind of feel like, you know, we are who we are and, and over time we'll get back to the routines that we always used to have. Um, so we'll we'll just have to see how enduring any kind of a change in, in consumption, let's say, will be. Um, one, one place where, you know, I, I feel like you could make a contrarian call on what's what's likely to happen is on the inflation side for me, where um, clearly it's not the consensus, because if it was, the markets would be acting differently, um, interest rates, commodities would be acting differently, or much differently. Some people do agree with this view, but uh, I think the consensus, uh, you hear uh, the response, well, yeah, the money supply has gone up, but velocity is way down. And guess what happens if we do have this snapback in behavior after the pandemic? What's going to happen to velocity? And when you have money supply way up and velocity rebounding strongly, um, I don't see how you make a case that we're going to see no inflation. So that's just one um, area that I want to protect myself um, you know, against. Um, Basically, I agree with Ray Dalio. Long-term cash is trash, and you have to find ways to invest into productive assets with pricing power and and so forth. Um, And just one other thing, Phil, I I have to totally disagree that uh, one cannot make uh, any predictions because I did call the market top yesterday when I saw that Snoop Dogg has raised a $100 million fund to invest in the cannabis industry. Oh, wow. Um, I missed that. So I'm, yeah, I mean, it was easy to raise the hundred million. I can just imagine those conversations with the institutional allocators going where they ask him, Mr. Dog, what is your edge? And he will say, well, I am the world's biggest connoisseur by far (laughs) of cannabis. So I just have a handle on it like no one else. And soon enough, the hundred million flowed into his new Was it a SPAC Uh, or what was the structure? Sounds like it's just a fund. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, my only, yeah, that's what I was going to say. My only question here is like, I'm I'm kind of disappointed. What took so long, and why why not like a cannabis back like eight months ago? Well, he was busy um, doing the fundamental research. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
yeah. a lot of diligence. No, but yeah, yeah, no, but in all seriousness, I mean, you know, you can. It's impossible, you know, like that saying goes, never um, say a time frame and a prediction in the same sentence. Yeah. Um, so that's, I definitely agree with that. But that said, you know, I think you can kind of take the temperature of a market and just say it feels frothy or it doesn't or what have you. And, and um, you know, to me oh, right yeah. now, it feels very frothy. But, you know, who knows? Taking can, the temperature yeah. and weighing the odds. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to get at. So my my public service announcement was just when you read these things about the S&P 500 should return 4.2% next year, 9.7% next year. I mean, those numbers are just the definition of meaningless. What you have to decide is what are the odds and what's priced in and look at it like you're you're handicapping a race or playing poker or something like that, where there's a set of odds and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things can happen. And you only bet when the odds are really in your favor. And that's really hard to do across big, giant, liquid asset classes. Um, but yeah, I think if we could all just ignore this late in the calendar year temptation to forecast things that are almost unforecastable and yet try to do it with ridiculous precision, I think that would be a, a positive thing for the world. Yep, absolutely. I feel like, you know, how many people have tried to short Tesla somewhere along <laughs> the way? Um, probably didn't go well. Doesn't mean it's not a good time now. Um, but it's just to go going back to that David Einhorn saying that if something is irrationally priced, why couldn't it be two times irrationally priced? Why not 10 times irrationally priced? Like if it's already, if it already makes no sense then how can you use an argument that does make sense to explain like what's the maximum that it can go to right so yep. but again it's about the odds and maybe you can um you know reflect that in a, in an allocation um so there's ways to to kind of uh, invest without betting it all on one outcome, but simply positioning the portfolio to do well under a, you know, a range of scenarios where you feel like you've um, kind of estimated the odds better than the rest of the market. Yeah, that's just it. You, pre you prepare for a range of outcomes and you don't predict or bet everything on one. And you update it dynamically through a Bayesian framework because, you know, your starting point does matter and things incrementally change that and you have to decide which you want to give weight to and which you don't. Um, and things could change really fast as we learned this year, which was kind of crazy. And, you know, I, I will say one dilemma that I have, um, let's say I like Twitter as a company. I think it's going to, I think it's just a very important company in the world. And Twitter users love the platform. Um, it's under monetized. So I feel like there's a really good long-term bull case to be made on Twitter. At the same time, I feel like um, the NASDAQ as a whole is really stretched far. Um, there's a lot of examples. We just talked about one earlier in this conversation of just craziness happening uh, in the market with valuations. And so I do think there's going to be a reckoning. And the dilemma I have is kind of how to express my view on a company like Twitter that I think will do it well uh, over time, but where, 
you know, it's in a neighborhood that could get really hit hard uh, at some point, um, since we're talking about 2021, let's say at some point in 2021, um, you know, to what extent do I want to have that exposure now versus perhaps a little bit later? And I don't have an answer for that. This neighborhood topic is one I've spent a lot of mind share on the last couple of weeks, and it's perhaps a good uh, good conversation for uh uh, the next podcast too, because I've really got a lot of thoughts going through my head. I have similar concerns about how hot certain corners of that neighborhood are in particular, um, where, you know, some of these companies I really like over the course of five years or more, but like, you know, recognize that there are vulnerabilities in the next one to two years because of who's invested in it. And I think it's important. Um, this investor, uh, Mike Masters has this really interesting, uh, framework to think about, look at who owns your stock and think about what's in their mind and what their mandate is. And when mind and mandate are in a you know certain place, there are consequences uh, that'll happen, that'll play out through the market. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of the mind and mandate in some of these tech stocks, uh, out of their minds and mandate is you know uh, not exactly aligned with um, what we talked about before, about having good... Um, having companies speak sensibly about their uh, futures and about where they are today versus their roadmap for where they could be and making sure people have, you know, reasonable uh, anchored expectations. Great. Well, guys, I think we'll leave it there. It was another fascinating discussion. Thanks uh, so much to both of you. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Happy holidays uh, and a great start to the new year. Uh, we will talk to you all soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.